2: everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to kick our uh, episode off and bring our guest in?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This is Bill Stoker. Bill is, he served in both the U.S. Marine Corps and he's currently active in the U.S. Army. And I ran into Bill's site a few years back and he had a very concise, um, easy to follow, easy to understand method for land navigation, you know, particularly how to read uh, topos and apply the UTM coordinates to it. So I became a fan of his, and we invited him on the show. And every once in a while, we like to do this. We had a gentleman on a year, year and a half ago who uh, had a show on how to use your compass, and he had some great tips on how not to get lost and how to get unlost. And uh, Bill's familiar with all of that, of course so with that said if you like the show you know what to do let us know click the like and subscribe and if you want to support the show that helps us out a bunch um actually can do it for as little as a dollar a month we've got a link to patreon in the youtube description so with that said i'm going to bring bill on and then um I'm going to start it off. He can give us a little bit of a background on uh, how he learned nav, land nav, and then we'll just uh, dig into some questions. All right, Bill, are you there?
1: Hey, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm stoked to be here.
3: Okay, yes, that, that's, that's your motto. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, I ran into your webpage, uh, or I should say your channel, a few years back. And you explained land nav, and, you know, I was, I was, my background was marine navigation, so it's lat long, not UTMs, some differences there. Um, one of the things that we talked about <clears throat> earlier was how to keep from getting lost. You're, you're hiking along a trail, PCT or just some for-service trail. And you want to get off the trail. You're either going to take care of business or maybe there's you're looking for an opportunity, a good photo op to get a mountain or a vista. And what happens is, as you're walking off, you go 50, 100 yards. And next thing you know, uh, you, you turn around, you look behind you, and nothing looks familiar. Right. And you, you start to feel lost. So uh, one of the things you had mentioned was bring along timber cruising tape. So I'm going to hand the mic to you and explain to us how how that works and why it works. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. So, you know, it's all land navigation really, really comes down to four things, you know, knowing where you are, planning a route, staying on a route, and then recognizing the objective. So maybe you're at a, a base camp, maybe you are off of a, a, a hiking trail, like you said, for whatever reason you want to get off from where you're at and basically bushwhack and make sure that you have some confidence in order to be able to come back. So one of the things that we can do is, is using some typical flagging tape uh, that loggers will use, and it, it's available at, at literally every big box store from Walmart to Lowe's, Home Depot, all of them, uh, in, in a variety of fluorescent colors, which makes it uh, very highly contrasted from the natural vegetation. And so if you mark your point of exit around a tree, maybe, you know, as high as you can get, preferably eye level, if not a little bit higher, because it increases the probability of discovery. And then you shoot an azimuth. uh, Hopefully you have a compass on you and you can say, I'm going to move out, you know, 90 degrees. With this method, you really don't need a compass uh, so long as you can look back and see that last point that you marked. So let's say you could only get out because of the thick vegetation. Maybe you could only step out 25, 30 paces, and you turn around, and, and you can still see it, but it's on the verge of not being able to be seen. So now you have uh, another identifiable point where on that closest tree to you, you can string around a, another uh, run of flagging tape around, around that tree, and then you can step off again. And you can keep doing this with such a strong degree of confidence that you're going to be able to work yourself back because you're leaving yourself breadcrumbs, except instead of being down at ankle height, you know, they're up at six foot height. So, again, it allows you to see it from a a much further distance. And if you have your compass, well, it even gives you more probability because if you moved out at, you know, 180 degrees, Whenever you're done, you know you shoot your back azimuth or, or the reverse direction that you started moving off in, which would be in this case 360 or zero um, by adding or subtracting 180, and it gives you even that much more confidence that you can work yourself back. Uh, you know, every year, and I know you guys know this, but every year, thousands of search and rescue operations are conducted to recover or return those who are injured, wounded, or lost. And those are only the reported cases, not to mention, you know, the, the tens of thousands of times that folks become lost or isolated for, you know, maybe it's two to, to six to eight hours. And, and they never told anybody. They never uh, had that opportunity. So this kind of situation happens so frequently, especially out in the West where you have wide open public land that people are trying to explore, which they should. But you need to do so with confidence and knowing that you have the skills and abilities to be able to work yourself back.
3: You know, Bill, that's part of the reason uh, we got you on is um, public safety. Because I know you guys have the same problem. If it's okay, can I just say you you reside in Washington State somewhere? Okay. You're in Washington and here in Oregon, we get mushroom hunters. We get people who vanish all the time. You know, we the county I live in takes the cake. And, and I read about him. He had a guy up there in Washington. He was, uh, I think an assistant fire chief Mm -hmm. and yeah. And, and he perished, you know, he, he was gone for six days and, um, but a lot of these people are just totally vanished. So Mm -hmm. we like to do this as a kind of a public service. You know, a lot of our, Uh, Listening audience are people who enjoy the outdoors. So this is, you know, take notes. And uh, by the way, we're going to put a link to Bill's channel in in the uh, description on YouTube so people can go back and visit and see his videos. A couple questions that I have is the first one. It's a tough one. It's a real tough one. (laughs) I like it, You like tough ones. All right, here you go. If you want to get to know the outdoors, should you sit behind a desk at a keyboard and picking at keys or option number two, should you get out there?
1: Oh, and, you know, it, it, as much as I would love to tell people to, to sit for hours behind a computer and watch YouTube videos of some people <laughs> you know it, it, it's definitely something that you need to get out and do i mean not only are, are we talking about basic motor skills but just the experience of being outside and being disconnected from you know your the daily grind the daily life that that can wear you down so you get outside and, and you have all the scenes that you're able to see and all the everything that you're able to experience and smell and it's there's nothing that you can replicate that with by sitting in a house, you know, behind a computer.
3: I agree entirely. Um, let's say you get out there and, you know, you you didn't buy it or you didn't – you don't have the, the, the logging tape, tempering mm. tape. And you walk off trail and you suddenly realize, I'm lost. Do you panic or what's, what's your next best – option
1: yeah so i think this happens probably more often than uh anybody would would care to admit uh but the very first thing that you should do is understand you know your your basic psyche your basic mindset wants to go to panic mode because you're in an unfamiliar place you've never maybe you've never been there before and now it's it's all of a sudden oh my gosh I am lost as anything and I don't know what to do. So if you understand that that's what your body kind of naturally wants to, to drift into, if you can rein that back in and just stop where you're at, just, just stop. Maybe you have, you know, maybe you can make yourself uh, some, some cowboy coffee or, or some green tea or something. Maybe you can take a little chow break and being active In your mind and getting after some of these tasks of just nourishing your body and replenishing it does a couple of things. Uh, You know, the second, third order effect is you're going to have more energy later on, you know, in the day when you need it. But it also helps slow you down and provides you with a little bit of purpose and direction In what you're doing. And now you can start to think about, you know, as you're enjoying a a, a nice warm cup, especially now that it's getting cold, it's nice to have something that's warm to drink. You can start thinking about where was I at? What direction did I move off to? You know, where was the sun? Where were the shadows? What did I happen to look back on and see as I was moving forward? You know, try to help maintain some situational awareness and then, you know, after five or ten minutes, you know, most of the time, people are going to find that they have remembered something that is going to spur their memory as far as being able to work themselves back. So I think being able to t- take that break and not be in so much of a rush, that, that's what dudes, that's what we like to do, right? Oh, I'm not lost. I'm just going to take a turn here. I'm going to take a turn there, and I'm going to keep going. All you all you end up doing is further compounding your problem, whereas if we just stop. And admit that maybe I don't know exactly where I'm at right now. But I know where I came from. And if I think about it. Logically enough. I should be able to return back.
3: You know that's a really good point. Now, I, I was just thinking. <clears throat> sitting down and having some coffee or tea. Or maybe soup or whatever you have. Just sit down and take a break. Right. Something could pop into your head. That right. in that panic stricken moment, you're in a fight or flight mode. You have tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. But if you can sit down and take a break and relax a little bit, hey, I hadn't thought of that. And then you can try something. So yeah. what um because judging from your videos, you really get out there. I mean you and your I can't remember your dog's name, but he's a great That's pooch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's and I I thought based on his coloring, I thought well maybe he was a uh, Belgian Malinois, but but you corrected me. He's a German Shepherd. Uh, so you get out there and and you do quite a bit of this stuff. Let's talk about the value of if you're going to go out and you're going to do a little bit of hiking in an area, stopping at the local ranger station and for eight to fifteen bucks. You mm-hmm. can pick up a topo map. It yeah. tells you a lot of stuff.
1: Oh, it does. You know, and you know the the, the USGS website. Uh, that, that's one of the most top questions that, that I get is, you know, where can I, I I acquire maps? And you know, if you're before you enter an area, you could always order a map from the United States Geological Service, uh, which is going to cost you fifteen dollars plus five uh, for shipping. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get a full-size map from them. But as you're entering any uh, land that has any sort of you know, ranger station that is overseeing it, and you may have to look around and find where those stations are because they're not always extremely convenient depending on, on your avenue of approach. But it's worth you know, a half hour, 45 minutes uh, out of your way to go stop in. Not only can you get a map, but you're going to get up to date information on the weather, on terrain, on any activity that's been going on, whether it's fire related, whether it's animal related, uh, just all kinds of risks and hazards that we should have. Plus, you're going to have that point of contact to give back to your loved ones who know where you're at, and now they know where, who to contact. You know, should should you miss a, a, a you know a time hack as far as you know coming back out? but absolutely great resource. All, all, all the ranger
3: stations for sure. Okay. So that brings up another interesting point, And that is, I don't think most of anybody who gets lost in the forest sets out in, in the, you know, when they set off for the day, they go drive up to with their hiking, favorite hiking spot or whatever says today, I'm going to get lost. Right. I'm going to, no, nobody plans ahead that way. Exactly. So, is there something that you can do? And this is a rhetorical question, of course. But, like, maybe, giving your location and coming up with a basic plan that you can leave with somebody.
1: Yeah, you know. So, so in the military, you know, we have acronyms for everything, and we would call it, you know, this contingency plan, a, a, a GOWTA, and it's just uh, all the basic. Five W's that, that you're going to have, you know, who's going, others that might be going with you, you know, time that you should be back, what to do if you don't come back and then, you know, actions. So, so those are your, your, the basic acronym. But if you just leave somebody, just the basic details, maybe with a, a map and an overlay of this is the campsite that I'm going to. This is the trail I'm hiking. This is the purpose of where I'm going to. Because I, maybe I, I do intend on doing some bushwhacking and getting off trail a little bit. You can kind of leave those plans with somebody who is not going out. And they have that map. They have that overlay. They have, you know, whether it's the, the county search and rescue uh, phone numbers or, you know, if somebody's a ham operator, they have those free. They have uh you know the, the sheriff's department they have the ranger station and they have everybody has kind of operational control over that area and it's it's nothing to be ashamed of to say you know I'm going off alone and here's what to do whether it's with a spouse or a loved one or family member uh, it's it's a good habit to have because like you said nobody ever seeks out with the intention of getting lost you know nobody Puts themselves in, in a, that position, but it does happen whether it's through injury, uh, a sprained ankle, a, a twisted knee, you know, we fall down and, and hurt our hip, um, or because we just happen to get lost. And having that point of last seen, you know, th- those moments in time where we can leave in those overlays of this is the campsite that I'm going to, that provides those ground operators. A point to be able to move out to very quickly and to conduct a search and getting something done within the first you know, 24 or less hours uh, for that search team has astronomical uh, re- return on the investment in order to be able to uh, successfully bring somebody back and make it not a
3: recovery mission, but a return mission. You know, and that's a good point. Yes, exactly. You want it to be a return and not a recovery mission. And here's the thing um, not everybody realizes that doing a call out to a SAR team, it's it, you know, you got to assemble those people, you got to get them together, and then if there's dogs, you got to get the guy with the dogs. All that stuff takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's something to, you know you also need to to bear in mind, and um, you know this what I'm about to say this saying that is one is none, two is one. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, you know, so uh, super common phrase, and we use it a lot for a lot of the the basic survival tools uh, that we may carry on our purpose. Of That two is one and one is none. And so because odds are you're going to lose something, something's not going to be dummy corded right, or you're going to be separated from some portion of your, of your gear. So if on in my pack, for example, I may have a, a compass, uh, but if I have another compass, it's, it's dummy corded to my person then I know that no matter what, even though I'm carrying two, and it may add a couple extra grams, and all the ultralight backpackers might be losing their minds that you're going to add a, a, a couple ounces. Um, the, the value in having two of an item to build, to perform a function, it cannot be overstated, uh, the, the value of that, because Odds are Murphy's going to, you know, he, he's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to smack you in the face, and you thought you had your knife because it was on your person, but you dropped your knife for whatever reason. But you know that in your pack that you have another knife that you can rely back on. So having having some redundancy built in, and it doesn't have to be of every single item, but of the main survival items that that you know that you need and the you know that you need to have so things that when it comes to you know being able to navigate so having a couple of compasses having a couple of cutting tools and, and everything else that you need to um, as you know we all perform risk management um, in, in this process it's where do we want to accept risk of adding a second tool into our kit in order to be able to to have that ready for us to go
3: you know, and that's a good point. And the other thing that I was thinking of is if you're traveling in pairs, at least two people, if one person injures themselves, the other one can help them back. Push comes the shove and the guy's got a busted leg or back or, you know, he can't move mm-hmm. this person. Then at least you got one other person to go back and get help. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, some of the other considerations are, you know, a lot of people, there, there's a, a huge reliance on, and, and it works. It's it's good stuff, but it works. That's technology. Your mm-hmm. phone, your GPS unit. Uh, I use them. Quick look. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's where I'm at. Okay. But it's not a replacement for a map and compass and that other computer that's located between the ears it needs to be programmed how to use that stuff correct yeah absolutely um so what would you would you strongly recommend even though you have an electronic device map and compass and knowledge on how to use it
1: yeah man that's uh you know in, in- 2022 going on 2023 you know for the last decade or more or so you know the the making of, of GPS whether it's in a standalone device or, or even on your phone that you can download off you know offline maps on is phenomenal asset if we use them however comma, Pause for a dramatic effect. And I won't make it too long of of an effect. We all know that um, in certain areas, dependent on the vegetation or the terrain, that a device may not be able to have access enough to enough satellites in order to give you accuracy. Even, Even if you can only reach one satellite, that that radius of accuracy drastically increases because it really needs three and it really needs four satellites to really be able to pinpoint you down to that three or four meter radius. Well, if you don't have that, you know your radius. If you may look and you may see a, a, a grid coordinate, but if you're not paying attention, it may tell you that your uh, error. Could be a hundred meters. Well, that that's huge, that, especially up here where we know when we get off, you know, trail. Especially, you know, a hundred meters difference of a location, the terrain can be astronomically different than what you're expecting. Especially if you try to go plot that on a map. So having, you know, a and not to mention batteries die and connectivity happens. I mean. We've all experienced drop calls, or you know, some some form of data drop, and that's what we're talking about. Some that latency, that drop. Well, if you have a map that you got from that ranger station, or you ordered online from from your favorite place to get it, whether it's the USGS or CalTopo or, or any of the the other top guys that are out there, and you have a compass, now I can orient myself and i can look at the terrain around us and i can see the bigger picture because i'm not just zoomed in to a very close detail of where i'm at i can actually look at the entire mountain range that's around me i can look at the entire olympic peninsula and i can see what's around me to help orient to where I'm at and what should be to my north, my south, my east, my west, in order to be able to make a decision on what I'm trying to do. So carrying, you know, that that paper map uh, and carrying that compass and preferably those two compasses uh, is astronomically uh, a, a huge benefit to your kit when you're out exploring.
3: You brought up another really good point, and that is. I've often felt like when I'm looking at either my phone or or my GPS, they're wonderful devices, but it's kind of like reading a large map through. Imagine you got a card with a postage stamp size hole in it, and you got a—that's what you got to look through. Hey. You are focused on that one little area, and as you zoom out, you lose resolution. You lose um, the thing with a paper map is you can you orient the compass to the map or orient, you know, so the map is pointing north and you can, now you can pick out land features, you know, mm-hmm. if you, if you got, you know, visual sightings of mountains and that sort of thing. So in case you folks are wondering, we are kind of uh, being a bit redundant <laughs> on the, the value of map and compass. It's, it's very important. Um, you know, I want to go back to this whole SAR thing for a moment. Have you worked with or have you got friends or any kind of knowledge of where, you know, any kind of SAR operations?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, most of my time uh, with the local SAR groups has been uh, in, in instructing uh, with land navigation. Uh, with my day job being what it is still in the military, uh, I, I don't have a lot of time to, to volunteer and be on call. Uh, I'm looking forward to that time uh, as I transition out of the military, probably within the next couple of years. But for now, my time has just been on training uh, local county uh, search and rescue operators.
3: And it's important to note that these guys are all volunteers.
1: Yeah, I think probably. For
3: the most part.
1: may have one or two Probably that are tied to their sheriff's office that that are full time guys, but the vast majority of everybody are all volunteers, you know, and they're living you know just like a a typical you know volunteer firefighter, which I think most of the country can uh, relate to. Uh, Those SAR guys are the same way, so they're 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 living at home and they're doing their day job, you know, five days a week or whatever it is, and you know, if a call comes in, then they're staying by ready to, to go in and help those
3: who are in need. Yeah, and again, that kind of goes towards, uh, it can take a while to assemble a team together. You know, hey, uh, John's working and Mary's, you know, she's doing this. Yep. And, you know, you got to get the people together. Mm-hmm. So uh, you really do need to uh, give them some time. I've I've looked at, What's involved in where somebody, they don't go missing, but they get injured, for example, up on Mount Hood. Right. That, that happens a lot. Oh, that's yeah. A, that's a mean mountain. And it can take, if they're moving at the speed of light, uh, I think it's the Army National Guard typically that will bring their helicopters in there. It's nine hours mm-hmm. before they can get out there to get to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cold nine hours, especially if you've got a broken leg or something.
1: Depending on the time of year, that's, that's absolutely life-changing.
3: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, Bill, we're just coming up on 30 minutes, and uh, we're about out of time. But I really want to thank you. Uh, you, you responded quickly when we invited you on the show, and, and we appreciate that. We appreciate your knowledge. We appreciate your service. And again, we're going to leave a link so people can go to your website. You got some great videos. Plus, let's face it, you got a little bit of a quirky sense of humor and people like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So last question is, do you have any questions for us?
1: Uh, You you know, I don't have any questions for you, but I'll tell you, and and this may relate to more your specific, you know, viewers who are coming in. Um, I, I spend the vast majority of my time bushwhacking off trail, and whether I'm up in the uh, Olympic Peninsula or working out through the Cascades, and you know, I, I just have this this desire to explore and to feel like I'm someplace that I've never been at before and that nobody else has been at before. That, that, that sense of adventure really gets to me. Um, and so, I, you know, risk management is huge. Uh, and it, it's, it rises to the forefront of my thought in when it comes to planning what I'm going to do. But the truth is, you never know what you're going to encounter. When you start getting off trail, you know, when you're on a major trail, I was off in the, in the Glacier National Park uh, earlier this year with my wife. And, you know, oh, my God, there were, you know, three, four hundred people on this trail. But if you get off on a lesser known trail and maybe start exploring, maybe you want to catalog uh, some of your experiences or maybe you're specifically searching for something. You have absolutely no idea what you're going to encounter. Again, whether it's terrain, whether it's, you know, wildlife with cougars and God forbid, you know, brown bears, black bears, ultimately not that big of a deal. Uh, But you just have absolutely no idea. And I know I've had experiences in especially in the last few years of being, you know, really deep up into some hidden valleys that that most people don't go to because they're not well-known. And it is at those times and it is in those moments where if you are not well-prepared, if people don't know where you're at and something happens, the likelihood of getting assistance to you is, is even that much more remote so, you know, go out and and be go out a go out, b be, be prepared and have a plan for those contingencies that may happen. Whether you're going out alone or whether you're going out with with, with a small group, but have those plans because Murphy's going to hit you in the face, and I think we could all attest to. We're gonna come across things that we haven't come across before. That's just life; it, it happens. So we have to be prepared for those things. So I definitely appreciate what we, what um, you guys are doing, and the message that you all are supporting and promoting, and the things and being aware of the things that that we may not have explanations for, or that we do have explanations for, and we're just trying to type the loose ends around them. So. Some crazy times out there, that's for sure.
3: Well, you said something that's near and dear to our hearts and encountering things that you've never encountered before or hadn't expected. Will, has that ever
2: happened with us? Oh, that's never States? happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very We've well said. We've had a few little.
3: introductions. Ah. <laughs> uh, we didn't want to get too deep into that subject, Bill, because we really brought you on just primarily for your uh, skills and yeah, your no. videos. <laughs>
1: uh, if I'm honest with you guys, I was up in, uh, in the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, this was maybe two years ago uh, before Riggs, and I'm super deep, man. I'm super deep in, the, in this valley that nobody goes into because there's no lake there's no major activities that's going on uh it's the hump to hump tulips valley and i'm just doing a solo overnight and uh and i'm sitting there uh, maybe three four hundred meters off trail like not a not a huge distance and i was having the time of my life you know being disconnected from all the things we talked about you know Cell phone activity is absolutely a no-go. You know, I'm minimum 25 miles as the crow flies from any sort of, you know, life support, which ultimately means, you know, two to three hours of actual travel time to get to where I'm at. And at night, man, oh, my God, you know, I, I get... I got a little nerve wrecked um, with some of the noises that I was hearing around camp. And ultimately, I, I, I couldn't find anything, couldn't find any sign. And it was just a noise. But, you know, there's stuff that's out there, daytime and nighttime, um, that will absolutely make you question everything that you've seen, everything that you've heard everything that you have experienced and have been told that you should experience if you have either the guts to get out there into some of these remote areas or if you just happen to be out there and you know I mean like I said it's gonna smack you in the face whether you're ready for it or not so you got to be ready for it
3: (laughs) well <clears throat> yeah that's that's exactly true i don't know will have you ever had any experiences in the olympic uh
2: national forest oh yeah you know i've been up there and <laughs> looking for stuff and then we've had things happen <clears throat> and uh in fact we're going to have a a guy on the show here in a few days who was at his parents house um out east of Enumclaw, claw just just a few days that's ago right. and one of these things started screaming just on and on and on and on. He recorded some, of it. we'll have that on the uh, the episode also. But yeah, this this stuff happens, and you don't expect it.
3: Right. Well, Will, I listened to it, and it's it was almost identical to what Kurt and I heard in the area that you and I were and and Adam were at uh, earlier this year. And I got to tell you, it grabs your attention.
2: And there's nothing even else when like it's it. Distant. Nothing else like that.
3: No, no, it's like a human screaming, but they've got the lung capacity of a diesel locomotive. <laughs> and, um, Will, you, ha- I think you had another experience of screaming or hollering, uh, in the Olympics.
2: Uh, there's been a number of them over the years, but the one, the one in particular was in the Olympics on the western side, uh, up the Quinault River. There's, <clears throat> and I've talked about it before, <laughs> but. There's a place called Graves Creek Campground about 13 miles mm-hmm. uh, east of Highway 101, and it actually yeah. splits the river splits into two forks up there. And on the north fork, there used to be kept seven little campsites, just little kind of rough sites. Uh, they're gone now; the river washed them out a number of years back. But <laughs> we were staying up there and, and decided to go for a walk. And there's a pretty I don't mean, know if you've been up there, Bill. You see there there's that big rocky ridge that divides the two forks. Yep. And um, we walked up to where the ranger station is or was, and nobody was manning it at that time. So we walked back, and we're almost back at the camp spot. And and this is right at dusk. And one of these buggers was on that little uh, rocky ridge there and just cut loose screaming. And it just was so loud, it just reverberated down through the canyon there. And you could hear people all over the place going, oh, my God, what was that? What was that? And the dogs were barking and all kinds of you know commotion going on and uh, unfortunately it only it only screamed like that one time but uh, because i had my of course i had my recorder in my hand i was ready to record it and it gave us hell and then walked back up the ridge i suppose but that was uh that was definitely one of these things Yeah,
3: yeah well that's and it's here's the thing that's funny will did you have any inclination whatsoever that it was there before it announced oh, itself? Not, not at all. I got to think, I think every single experience that I've had, whether it's these things hollering or whether or, or seeing one or whatever it was, I was in a place where I knew they weren't, but they were.
2: <laughs> well, that's just it. Most <laughs> often you're not expecting, same with a lot of other regular wildlife out there, you're not really expecting to encounter something. It just happens because I think mm-hmm. most people just aren't really paying attention. Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you again. And, um, I don't know. I'm hoping we get to do a follow-up sometime down the road.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Uh, I, I, I hate to use my name is the cliche, but I'm stoked to have, uh, have the opportunity to come on and and chat with you guys, and definitely looking forward to another one again.
3: It's a good cliche. Absolutely, we so appreciate it, Bill. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. It's Bill appreciate Stoker, you. and your channel is Stokermatic. It is. All right, we'll have links.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap this session. Thanks, everyone. in bigfoot history kansas about nineteen fifty nine mrs nadine goslin topeka wrote to roger patterson that a man going to her grandmother's home at in potawatomi indian reserve had seen a real hairy man standing beside the house he was so frightened that he drove across the lawn through the clothesline and across the ditch to get back on the road and out of there about the same time a lady plowing a field says she saw a wild man run off into the timber alongside of the field.
0: Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The Glen Thomas Story. I was supposed to be watching a cat skinner as he was fire trailing, but it was awful cold, and I walked a mile or so down the trail because he had no need of any one at that time, and I thought I'd warm up and see the country. Up where he was, it was cold, and the east wind was blowing. A little further down, it was a west wind coming in. It was late fall the last week in deer season, I think, in 1967. It was a mountain trail. They have several of them up there, footpaths, and four horses, too. The elevation was about between four and 5,000 feet. I came out lower down, into the fog, before I saw anything, and the fog was freezing on the trees because it was so cold, but if the wind would blow, the fog would break off and fall down and "'Well, that made it kind of noisy. "'It sounded like walking. "'I came around a bend. "'Well, first I noticed some rocks that were turned over. "'All the other rocks were wet because of the fog, "'but these rocks were dry. "'Then I looked up, about forty or fifty feet, "'up on a ridge of rock, and I saw these animals there. "'Looked like human, or just about. "'Large male.' The female wasn't so large, and a small baby, well, not really small. It was moving with them. It was standing up, mostly. The two older ones were squatting down and, well, sort of bending as they picked up rocks and smelled them. They were kind of careful. They moved on for a few minutes, and then finally the male found possibly what he was looking for and dug real fast down into the rocks which were large boulders, well, not not the round type of rocks, but the flat, sharp kind. I could not explain why these rocks were there. There hadn't been a slide or anything. They were on top of the ridge, so they wouldn't have come down from anywhere. They are loose, quite a few holes underneath them, and they are as if they had been broken up. Definitely not the round river rock type, uh, but... They, the animals, would pick them up, and after they smelled them, they would lay them down on top of each other. They didn't just lay them back down where they picked them up. They stacked them up in piles. And when the male found what he was looking for, he really made the rocks fly. The big rocks weighed fifty, sixty, or even possible 100 pounds. He just jerked them out with his hand. He didn't seem to take any precautions for his safety, later on i looked and there was some rock that could have fallen on him but he wasn't concerned he brought out what appeared to be a grass nest possibly some stored hay that small rodents had stored there he dug through that and brought out the rodents it seems they ate them the rodents appeared to be in hibernation or asleep or something there were about six or eight rodents in the nest The small animal, I noticed, only got to eat one, but the others got two or three apiece. But about that time they became aware of my presence, and, well, just became alert. I was alongside of this trail that follows the ridge. I didn't remember getting there, but I was squatting down beside a small tree when I became aware of where I was. As soon as they realized I was there, They suddenly began to move, real quiet, behind some low hanging limbs on a tree there. I didn't see them again after that. I tried to follow their tracks in the direction I thought they would have to go, but I couldn't find any, although there was frost there. But the next day I found two tracks, one heel print and the front part of the foot, the toes, but they were in a different direction, direction from which I had come, and... I never did get to connect them up with exactly which direction they had gone or know anything about them. The footprints, I would say, there wasn't enough of of the track to tell. Uh, They were possibly five inches wide, I, I don't know, at the widest point. I don't think they could have been six. I didn't know if it was one of the animals I had even seen that had made the footprints. I saw the toe print as it came out of the old landing. I saw the heel print as it went in. The heel print gave me the impression that the heel protruded. The tracks were in dirt. It was just as if you had a level piece and scooped it out for about two feet. And it would cave in or something. And the animal had stepped down into that and left a heel print and as it stepped out on the other side you could see the toe print. When I left the cat skinner he was on Low Creek but I had walked to Jim's Meadows, possibly a mile or more. I saw the footprints between where the cat skinner was and where I had seen the other animals. After the animals disappeared, I watched and looked for a few minutes and then decided I didn't want to go in that direction. So I just headed back. I didn't tell the cat skinner about seeing them. I didn't tell anybody about it until, well, Bob asked me to ask among my crews. Maybe some of them had seen them. That was the only time I had even mentioned it to any of the fellows out there because I didn't want anyone to think I was a nut or something or other. The only time I saw their faces was when they became alert. They gave me an impression of having a face a little like a cat without the ears. I couldn't remember seeing the ears. It seemed like the nose was much flatter. It didn't stick out like a man's. The, the upper lip was very short and seemed very thin. It, I couldn't remember that it had a chin like a human has, so somehow or other I felt that it was a face more like a cat than a human. The male was darker than the female, dirty, dirty brown, where the female was a buckskin or fawn-colored animal. The male had much longer hair on shoulder, head, and neck, and and hung in strings like you see on an angora goat. He was much heavier in the shoulders than the female. From just above the hips, the, the male got larger. He had a very wide small of the back. From there on up, well, he just got bigger and bigger. Then, well, they had very rounded or stooped shoulders. The head was set lower on the shoulders than a than on a human. They don't seem to have the neck stand up as we do. Most of the time they were not standing, but were squatting down, leaning forward to pick up the rocks. I didn't see them stand actually erect until the, m- the moment they became alert that I was there. Uh, I didn't see them walk, as such. The only movement I saw was when they made a quick, short dash to get behind the limbs of the trees. I saw them move all right, but in a humped-up, stooped-over position, just moving across the rocks. But they were upright when they made that quick dash at the end. It seemed to me that the mother picked up the baby in her lap and ran, holding the baby in front of her, possibly right below the breast, and her breast hung real low, much lower than on a human. I couldn't say how thick through the body these animals were, but they were very heavy set, particularly thick and heavy at the small of the back, and then on up through the ribs. I think the male was over six feet tall, but I'm an awful poor judge of height and weight or anything. I didn't think the female was as tall as the male. In fact, I think she came possibly up to his shoulder. But I saw them standing up so little, I I didn't know, but they were much larger than a human, much bulkier. The baby didn't come up to the mother's hips, actually, I don't think, but... I don't remember for sure. The first time I saw them standing up was as the male stepped out of the hole that he dug with the grass, but it was only a very short while until they took off. I didn't... You know, I didn't see them after that. Question. How did they eat? Oh, well, they ate just by taking it in their hand and eating it as one of us would if we were eating a banana. They ate it skin, feathers and all, but... Just bit it in two, and as they would bite part of it, well, and then just cram the other right on in. <laughs> the little one, though, he had a little more difficulty because he couldn't quite have enough room in his mouth for all of it, for the older ones did. It wasn't like a human would hand the food to the baby. He had to get his. He was scratching through the grass that, uh, that he had got uh, got it himself, and the female did the same thing. They gave you the impression in that way of not taking care of the baby, like people would. I've been wondering now if that group lived together as a family, and I hope to go back and look into it deeper. Question. Did you form any impression of the proportions of, say, the legs, in relation to the rest of the height? Would they be like a long-legged man or short-legged? Oh, I don't know. I I couldn't say for sure. But the arms were such that when they squat down, they have to bend forward to pick up anything. Their arms are not long enough to reach. Uh, This one that was digging just seemed to go right on down. I didn't remember seeing him get up, but as he was down there, well, he was just digging, and he kept on going down. And, well, at that time, I couldn't exactly see where, where he was because I was down, and they were up a little bit on the side of the rock which kind of levels off some, and, well, he went down, and so I couldn't see exactly what he was doing down in there, but I did see when he came out. At that time, I was a little bit nervous, but I'm not sure. Now about half of it seemed like a bad dream for a while. I just couldn't believe it. It was really happening. I just couldn't believe it. but it is. Question. "'Did you notice the hands at all?' "'I noticed that it had hands. "'I did not notice if it had thumbs. "'I couldn't tell from the way it worked. "'It didn't seem to use the thumb, "'and I didn't see any ears. "'I didn't see any knees projecting when, when it squatted. "'They were in an awkward position because of the rocks, "'and they couldn't just squat down like we would on a floor. "'They would be on different levels "'and off too far to be comfortable.' Well, that's as close as I can explain it. When they went from place to place they would shift in position according to the terrain. The male, well, actually both of them, seemed to be moving in a certain direction, possibly from tracing the small rodents. I thought possibly it was the scent left by the rodents coming up through the rocks because it was not a runway that they would have been picking through, because they were just picking up the rocks any place and as they picked it up, they'd turn it over and smell it, and then they'd lay it on the stack. They left it very different, definitely in a pile. They would leave anywhere from 3 to 15 or 21 pile as they would reach back, and then, oh, six to 8 feet farther, they'd leave another pile, starting laying them to, together and in another pile. With Renee and my daughter Catherine and son Jim... I went with this man last July to the spot where he had seen the three creatures. We found the piles of rocks to which he referred, not only at the spot he showed us, but on almost every other area of broken rock we found in two hours of scrambling around on the mountain. There were obviously piles manufactured by something or someone. The rock could not have just rested that way naturally. And there were dozens of them, The hole he saw the male Sasquatch dig was about five feet deep and almost as steep-sided as a well. No bear or anything else without hands could have lifted out the rocks. A man could undoubtedly figure out a way to do it if he had any reason to take the trouble. But in this case the story had only come out as a result of an inquiry from someone else who had seen footprints in the snow in January of this year and there was no reason to expect that anyone would be coming out to look over the site. This ends the story.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures